Four days until election day, we assess the state of the race. President Trump goes off on an illegal immigration and we check the mailbag. I'm Ben Shapiro, this is The Ben Shapiro Show. So in honor of Halloween, we've decided to move our entire studios to the upside down. It's very exciting. Uh, we actually are rebuilding our entire studio. It will be massive and magnificent. And we're doing all of it with your money, which makes it even better. It's just spectacular. We're gonna get to all the news in just one second. But first, let's talk about how you're gonna relax this weekend. So this weekend, th this whole week and next week, it's gonna be pretty stressful, right? And that's why occasionally you need to relax. Well, one of the best ways to relax is by getting a massage in your own home. Bring the spa to you. This is where Zeal comes in. Zeal.com or Zeal's iPhone or Android app, Z-E-E-L.com. It allows you to select from top local licensed pre-screen massage therapists. Choose your favorite technique, gender preference, time and location for your massage. Zeal will send one of their 10,000 licensed massage therapists with a massage table, music, supplies. They'll give you a five-star massage. I've used Zeal for my family. My wife has had a Zeal massage. My parents have both had Zeal massages. My in-laws have had it. My sisters have had it. It's just fantastic. Go check it out right now. Scheduling, booking, payment, all fast and easy. Even the tip is included seven days a week. 365 days a year, a Zeal massage therapist can be at your door in as little as an hour. It's privacy, convenience, quality, comfort. That's what you get with your massage on demand. Zeal's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Vogue, Good Morning America, and of course, on this show. They are on demand again. You're bringing the spa to your house. Help you get started. Our listeners get 25 bucks off their first massage with promo code BEN. That's Z-E-E-L.com, promo code BEN. Right now, Zeal.com. Get that special offer when you try Zeal today. Enter promo code BEN to get 25 bucks off your first in-home massage. All righty, so we are now four days from the election. It approacheth. And suffice it to say that nobody knows what exactly is going on. Now, the data suggests that Republicans could lose anywhere from 30 to 40 seats in the House, and they could pick up anywhere from zero to five seats in the Senate. But all of the modeling is, is sketchy at best. The, the sort of 538 modeling suggests an 85% chance that Republicans lose the House and a, an 85% chance they retain the Senate. But we've seen those sorts of odds bucked before. We simply don't know how turnout is going to be reflected, especially because there is high voter enthusiasm from both parties going into the election. Now, I would say that my feeling, my general feeling, is that Republican enthusiasm was higher three weeks ago during the Kavanaugh hearings because I've literally never seen Republican enthusiasm higher than it was during that period. With that said, Republican enthusiasm remains high because the country is simply so polarized. So. With that in mind, it's time to take a look at exactly what this election is going to be like. Well, there's very good news for Republicans going into the election. That news is the economic news that broke today. Job growth blew past expectations in October, and year-over-year -year wage gains jumped past 3% for the first time since the Great Recession, according to the Labor Department. So these are this is just a stunningly good jobs report. Non-farm payrolls powered up by 250,000 jobs for the month well ahead of refinitive estimates of 190,000. The unemployment rate stayed at 3.7%, the lowest since December 1969. Jim Baird, partner and chief investment officer for Plant Moran Financial Advisors, talking to CNBC. He said the job market is doing remarkably well, particularly this late in the expansion. This report adds yet another data point to a narrative that has been positive for the labor market this year. Little seems to stand in the way of the economy finishing 2018 out on solid footing which would seem to cut in favor of Republicans, because obviously when the economy is good, the economy is good. We, however, are in the middle of an extraordinarily polarized political environment. To just finish out the news on the economy, the ranks of the unemployed rose to a fresh record, sorry, the ranks of the employed rose to a fresh record of 156.6 million, and the employment to population ratio increased to 60.6%. That's the highest level since December 2008, so prior to the recession. That headline jobless number stayed level even amid a two-tenths of a percentage point rise in the labor participation rate of 62.9%. This is unmitigated good news. People counted as outside the labor force tumbled by 487,000 to 95.9 million, but wage growth is the biggest story. Average hourly earnings increased by five cents an hour for the month, 83 cents year over year. That's a 3.1% gain. The annual increase in wages was the best since 2009. It outstripped inflation. So that means a real wage growth. That number is being watched closely by the Federal Reserve, which has been increasing its benchmark interest rate. They did it three times this year. They're on track to do it again in December. There's a lot of talk about whether the Fed is actually tamping down growth by essentially curtailing the ability to lend. But suffice it to say that if the economy is this strong with a tighter Fed, that means that the economy is really busting loose. It's doing some pretty amazing things. And that is largely thanks to consumer confidence being extraordinarily high. It's due to the fact that a lot of voters and, and citizens feel that 
their money is not going to be taken away with, from them with a Republican Congress and a Republican president. All of this should cut very much in favor of the Republicans. And indeed, the Republicans do have a serious shot at keeping the House, even though the odds are stacked against it. So Sean Trend, who's an elections analyst over at Real Clear Politics, has a really good piece over there talking about what it would take for Republicans to retain the House. Here's what he says. He says, as we move toward the close of this election cycle, impending control of the House of Representatives remains up in the air. The general consensus among analysts is that Democrats are the favorites, perhaps by a substantial margin, but that Republicans remain in the game, which raises a question. What do we mean by Republicans staying in the game? Regardless of what the math might indicate, are there plausible scenarios that result in the GOP keeping the House? He says, yes. He says, there really are believable scenarios that don't require Republicans to win districts they've written off. Republicans have to catch some breaks, but they don't have to catch breaks in ways that shock and surprise us. We can still assume that suburban districts move against them, which they almost certainly will, but can even include some surprising Democratic wins. He says, in Arizona, Republicans could lose Arizona District 2. This open Romney-Clinton district is too much for Republicans to hold on to. In California, low Hispanic turnout enables Republicans to hold the 10th in the Central Valley. Steve Knight squeaks out a win in the northern reaches of L.A. Dana Rohrabacher keeps his seat. There's a poll today showing that Dana Rohrabacher is likely to keep his seat. He basically goes through state by state, and he says that there is indeed a significant possibility in which Republicans retain the House even as they lose 22 districts to the Democrats. So he says that basically this could be Democrats win 22 seats to Democrats win 40 seats. We just don't know. And that is why, you know, how the president acts right now and how the Democrats act does have an impact on the election. So let's talk about the, the president's closing, uh, his closing argument. So a lot of folks, as I said yesterday, are saying, why is it? Why is it that Republicans don't focus on all the good economic news and just make their message? The economy is great. And the answer is, saying the economy is good doesn't necessarily save you from voter ire. If voters are pissed off about a secondary issue, then the economy being excellent doesn't actually help you. Remember, the economic recovery of the early 1990s began under George H.W. Bush. It was not enough to save him as Bill Clinton went around railing against George H.W. Bush's economy. So a good economy is not necessarily a savior, and a bad economy is definitely a killer. That's the rule about economics in elections. So what that means is that both sides have to get their base ramped up to ignore the economy. And the Democrats are doing this by essentially suggesting that President Trump is a very, very mean man, right? This is the way that they are doing this. And President Trump is doing this by suggesting that there are real present threats to the United States that Democrats are willing to ignore. So Democrats claim that Trump is an alarmist. Trump claims that Democrats are sanguine about bad things happening to the United States. Both are sort of half right and half wrong. But the Democrats have decided also that Trump is Satan and Trump has decided that the Democrats are completely apathetic about bad things happening to the country. Now, I think that Trump is closer to right than the Democrats are, but here is the Democrat closing argument. The Democrat closing argument is put by Paul Krugman, who has been on this, this tear recently about how Republicans are legitimately evil. So there's a piece today in the New York Times, it's called A Party Defined by Its Lies. At this point, good people can't be good Republicans. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. I think that good people can be good Democrats. So I'm concerned why he would think that good people can't be good Republicans. Why? Well, you know the answer. It's because of Trump, right? He says, during my first year as an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, I wasn't allowed to use the word lie. That first year coincided with the 2000 election, and George W. Bush was, in fact, being systemically dishonest about his economic proposals, saying false things about who would benefit from his tax cut and the implications of Social Security privatization. But the notion that a major party's presidential candidate would go beyond spin to outright lies seemed, out, seemed dangerous and saying it was considered beyond the pale. Obviously, that prohibition no longer holds on this opinion page. Suffice it to say that the opinion pages of the New York Times were better when Democrats like Paul Krugman couldn't overuse the word lie to label anything that they think is a misinterpretation. He says, at this point, the GOP's campaign message consists of nothing but lies. Yeah, that, that's not an overstatement. It's hard to think of a single true thing Republicans are running on. Really? Is it that hard to think of a single true thing? How about the economy? How about the fact that Obamacare has been a failure? How about the fact that we do, in fact, need to secure our borders? How about the fact that we do need to build up our military? Like, there are a lot of things Republicans run on that are not, in fact, lies. But what are the big lies? Well, here's what Krugman says. He says, it's a Republican problem, and it's not just Donald Trump. But he really means it's just Donald Trump and his Republicans. Democrats aren't saints, but they campaign mostly on real issues. Really? They've been campaigning on transgender bathrooms. They've been campaigning on we should let everybody through the border because Donald Trump is mean. They've been campaigning on Russia collusion. Like, those are all real issues. All right. It says Democrats aren't saints, but they campaign mostly on real issues and generally do, in fact, stand for more or less what they claim to stand for. 
As we'll see, this is not, in fact, true. He says, Republicans don't. And the total dishonesty of Republican electioneering should itself be a decisive political issue because at this point, it defines the party's character. What are Republicans lying about? As I said, almost everything. Th thanks, Paul. He says, but there are two big themes. They lie about their agenda, pretending their policies would help the middle and working classes when they would, in fact, do the opposite. Um, did he see the economic report today in which job growth was massive and wage growth was massive? Like, that helps the poor and working class, actually, when the economy is good. And he says, and they lie about the problems America faces, hyping an imaginary threat from scary dark-skinned people and increasingly attributing that threat to Jewish conspirators. Okay, that last part is just a lie. Republicans are not going around attributing the threat to the United States to quote-unquote Jewish conspirators. They're saying that George Soros funds bad people. That is absolutely true. That does not mean it's an anti-Semitic riff any more than it's anti-Semitic for the Democrats to claim that Sheldon Adelson funds a lot of Republican causes, which is also true. As opposed, and, and his statement, hyping an imaginary threat from scary dark-skinned people. See, this is what I was saying yesterday. The Democrats have fallen right into Trump's trap because Trump says, we got a crisis on the southern border. Democrats, instead of saying, we do have a problem with our southern border and we need to solve that, but it's not a crisis. Instead of saying that, they go to, there's no crisis at all. Everything's hunky-dory. And you're just saying that because you're racist. To which the Republican response is, go F yourself. Yeah, I say that there's a threat, and you say that I'm a racist for saying there's a threat? And we'll go through the rest of Paul Krugman's column, because this is basically the Democratic closing argument, and then we'll get to how President Trump is fighting back against that. I also want to make a couple of comments about his statement that Democrats are, are, are telling the truth about their agenda. As we will see, this is eminently untrue. But first, let's talk about how you can pay off those credit card bills. So let's be real. Credit cards have been telling us for a long time, credit card companies, that you should buy now and pay it later. But the problem is that those interest rates skyrocket, which is why you should be consolidating your debt and paying off your credit cards with one fixed monthly payment with Lending Club. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high interest credit cards. All you have to do is go to LendingClub.com. You tell them about yourself, how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you. If you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer -peer lending platform with over $35 billion in loans issued. Go to LendingClub.com slash Ben. You can check your rate in minutes, borrow up to 40 grand. That's LendingClub.com slash Ben. Again, LendingClub.com slash Ben. All loans made by WebBank member FDIC equal housing lender. Now, there are a lot of reasons you might need a, a quick swing loan at a, at a decent rate. That's where Lending Club comes in. Again, you can check that rate in minutes and you can borrow up to $40,000. So if you've racked up credit card bills, then it's absolutely imperative to go check out Lending Club. LendingClub.com slash Ben. Go check it out right now. Okay, so Paul Krugman of the New York Times continues. He says, what Republicans truly stand for and have for decades is cutting taxes on the rich and slashing social programs. Sure enough, last year they succeeded in ramming through a huge tax cut, mainly at corporations and the wealthy, and came within one vote of passing a health reform that, according to the CBO, would have caused 32 million Americans to lose health coverage. Well, no, that is not what the CBO report actually said. What the CBO report actually said is that a bunch of people who had individual plans before and now have to be covered by Obamacare would no longer have Obamacare and presumably go back to individual plans. So that is not actually what the CBO said. He says, selling racial fear was easier in the early 1980s and, and 1990s when America really was suffering from high levels of inner-city crime. Since then, violent crime has plunged. What's a fear monger to do? The answer is lie. And here's where Krugman gets to the center of his, of his contention that only bad people can vote Republican. The lies have come nonstop since Trump's inauguration address, which conveyed a false vision of American carnage. But they've gotten ever more extreme, culminating in the portrayal of a small caravan of refugees still a thousand miles from the border as an imminent menacing invasion, somehow full of diseased Middle Eastern terrorists. Now, as I've said, do I think that the threat of the caravan is exaggerated? I do, because last time there was a caravan, by the time it reached the United States border, it was like 200 people, and they showed up asking for asylum at a border patrol station, and then they were processed, and most of them were sent back. So is this an existential threat to the security of the United States? No, I don't think the caravan is, but it is symbolic, and it is obviously symbolic, and the fact that Democrats refuse to acknowledge the symbolism of the caravan, the fact that Democrats refuse to acknowledge that it is a stand-in for the broader issue of people crossing the border illegally without permission of the U.S. government, making themselves at home, sometimes having criminal backgrounds, that's why Democrats are not resonating with the American people on this issue. And Krugman then says, there's an added insinuation that sinister Jewish financiers are the real culprits behind this invasion. Well, no, it turns out that demonizing George Soros is not anti-Semitic. Demonizing George Soros may be bad, but there's a difference between bad and inflammatory and anti-Semitic. He says, those who remain in the Republican Party are either fanatics willing to do anything in pursuit of power or cynics willing to go along with anything for a share of the spoils. 
or possibly a bunch of people who don't want anyone like Paul Krugman anywhere near the levers of power. Because the Democrats have shown themselves to be utterly irresponsible. People like Paul Krugman are completely wild. They have not posited either anything remotely approaching a moderate policy or even a moderate rhetoric. I mean, Paul Krugman is literally sitting there labeling 60 million Americans bad human beings because they're voting the way he doesn't want them to vote. He says, what will this party do if it retains full control of Congress next week? What we've seen over and over again is that for these people, there are no limits, no bottom. If they pull this midterm election out, expect the worst. What would the worst be, Paul Krugman? Would the worst be like the Holocaust? Like, what well, you want to specify? Of course, he's not going to because this is a scare tactic in and of itself. So it's so funny to hear the Democrats saying Trump engages in the politics of fear as they suggest that half of Americans are evil human beings for voting the way they don't want, which is indeed engaging in the politics of fear. Now, it is true that both sides are engaging in the politics of fear. The question is which fear is more justified. So President Trump yesterday gave a speech in the White House in which he talked about the military response to the caravan. Now, is it necessary to send 15,000 troops the size of the Afghanistan surge down to the border of Mexico? No, I don't think that logistically speaking that is necessary to deal with a caravan that is dwindling by the day. With that said, should we secure our border? Of course we should secure our border. And the president is using language being tough on immigration that is obviously directed toward the election. Again, directed at reminding Americans the Democrats don't take this issue particularly seriously. And he wins every time they declare that he's a white supremacist, because here's how the logic goes. Trump says, listen, we got a crisis at the border. And Democrats say, you're a racist for saying so. And he says, okay, so you don't even want to acknowledge that there's a problem. And they say, you're a racist for exaggerating the problem. Okay, if you just keep shouting racist and over and over and over, while the American people look at a caravan of illegal immigrants coming through Mexico, in some cases you can see there are tapes of people in the caravan. I'm sure a lot of the people in the caravan are fine folks who just want a better economic life. There are some people in the caravan, there's video of it, Benny Johnson has it up at, at Daily Caller. There's video of some of the members of the caravan throwing rocks at members of police. Okay, those are not people we need in the United States. Okay, but President Trump is obviously ginning up the base for the election. Is it right? I don't think it's right to exaggerate. Is it politically effective? Yeah, it probably is politically effective. Here's President Trump yesterday talking about what he's told the military to do in the case of people who are throwing rocks. But I will tell you this, anybody throwing stones, rocks, like they did to Mexico and the Mexican military, Mexican police, where they badly hurt police and soldiers of Mexico, we will consider that a firearm. Because there's not much difference when you get hit in the face with a rock, which, as you know, it was very violent a few days ago, very, very violent. Okay, so people, of course, saying that Trump now says that if you throw a rock at the border police, that they're going to shoot you to death. Okay, that's not what he's really saying there. Okay, and nobody in the military is going to obey that order. He's saying if you feel that your life is in danger, you can, you can in, use rules of engagement that allow you to defend yourself with a firearm, right? Which is basically what every civilized country would do. Trump just puts it in the most brutal way so people react in the most overwrought way. And then Trump says, listen, migrants who want asylum can show up at a port of entry, but if they show up between the borders, we are deporting them. Instead, migrants seeking asylum will have to present themselves lawfully at a port of entry. So they're going to have to lawfully present themselves at a port of entry. Which presumably is what they're going to do. I mean, that's exactly what the migrant did a couple the migrants did a couple of years ago. The problem for the Democrats is that they react with outsized outrage at everything President Trump does. And Trump is trolling them. Okay, just politically speaking, President Trump is obviously trolling them. But the Democrats react by saying that anything Trump says about immigration is just due to racism, which again, alienates a huge swath of the American public that is concerned about illegal immigration, may not even love President Trump's exaggerations, but if they have to choose between Trump's exaggerations and, and his sort of maligning of, of broader groups and a Democratic Party that assumes that any, any talk about this issue is endemically racist, they're going to choose Trump. And Trump understands it's binary. The Democrats think it's binary too, but if they think they're going to win on the basis of calling people racist, they are wrong. Here's Simone Sanders and CNN suggesting that you know, President Trump's remarks are a defense of white supremacy. Uh, you know, I hope when the White House sent out those statements today, the remarks of the president, they titled it in defense of white supremacy, because that's exactly what I heard from the White, from the white House, which is unfortunate. Look, if we want to, if we want to have a conversation about fixing our You're broken immigration dividing, system. always dividing, always dividing. It's not dividing me calling out the facts <laughs> enough. The facts no, are, he's saying, these brown people are coming to take your jobs. They're criminals. We can't trust them. We're going to shoot them at the border. No, and the Democrats I, I just heard, want them to come in, so you need to vote for the Republicans. Uh, here's what I... 
Okay, well, uh, she's adding the brown people section of that. He's saying there are people who are coming into the United States who may be criminals. There are people coming into the United States we haven't vetted. There are people coming into the United States who are going to undercut our our labor base. You know who used to say that sort of stuff? Bernie Sanders. You know who else used to say that sort of stuff? Harry Reid. It's not racist just because you are talking about a group of people coming up from a place where people have brown skin. Presumably, if there are a bunch of people coming from Canada throwing rocks at police officers while, while carrying the Canadian flag and trying to cross the border, Trump would react similarly. That's not going to happen because Canada is actually not a country where people are desperate to leave. It is happening from Central and Latin America because those are countries where people are desperate to leave. That's just a fact. Okay, now we're going to talk about the media's response. And again, Paul Krugman suggests over at the New York Times, the Democrats are telling the truth about their agenda. We will show that is certainly not the case in just one second. First, let's talk about the best coffee on the market in the midst of all the whining coming from the left on a variety of topics, the suggestion that every Republican is evil, the suggestion that free speech needs to be curbed in certain ways in order to make room for feelings, you have to wonder, why would anybody act this way? Well, my guess is they are not getting their daily dose of Black Rifle Coffee, because Black Rifle Coffee is the best coffee on the market. It is so good. Not only is the coffee fantastic, the founders of Black Rifle Coffee, these are folks with conservative values, a pro-veteran mission, Black Rifle Coffee is roast to order. It guarantees you fresh, delicious coffee with every order. And Black Rifle Coffee gives a portion of their sales to vets and first responder causes. Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes things easy. Just pick your blend and the amount you want. Black Rifle ships your coffee right to your door every month hassle-free. Nothing cures a bad attitude quite like starting your day with the most American coffee in America. Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com Ben and you get 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com Ben for 15% off. Go check it out right now, blackriflecoffee.com slash Ben. Again, 15% off your order. Also, you're helping a company founded by vets. It's a great, great company. Go check it out right now, blackriflecoffee.com slash Ben. So the media are so upset about Trump, they don't even want to play. They don't even want to play his ad. So we, we talked yesterday about an ad that President Trump put out that showed a guy named Luis Bracamontes, who was an illegal immigrant who entered the United States a couple of different times once under Clinton, once under Bush, remained under Obama, killed a couple of police officers, and Trump linked that to the illegal immigrant migrant caravan that is coming up from the South. And people immediately jumped to racist. Here's Wolf Blitzer, an objective journalist, being objectively journalismic, right? Suggesting that he doesn't even want to play the ad. It's just so terrible, I can't even play it. I just can't, I can't play it. I mean, it's just that bad. It's just, everything's terrible. You look at the uh, the rest of the video, and I don't want to even play it yeah. and give free advertising uh, uh, to to those out there. But if you look at the rest of it, you see hordes of invaders yeah. coming into, threatening to come into the United States, tearing down walls and fences, yeah. and threatening the American people. It's really pretty awful. Well, it's it's totally okay. Except that the fact is that we don't know who the migrants are who are coming up. And while I say that I think that the ad is alarmist, and I do think the ad is alarmist, the suggestion it's so awful you can't even play it is just, it's a bizarre contention. Again, these are folks who are fully willing to play every ad coming from Democrats suggesting that Republicans were going to deprive millions of people of their health care and leave them to die. That was totally okay. But Trump's saying, we may have a problem with illegal immigration, and then exaggerating that case for political effect, that's unplayable. Valerie Jarrett says, this ad is sad. Political fear-mongering, it's just fear-mongering. So this is the new Democratic byword these days. The Republicans are engaged in fear-mongering. Welcome to politics, gang. Look, it's just a sad page from an old playbook called Political uh, Fear-Mongering 101. We've seen it used time and time and time again. It's designed to scare people and to motivate them to not focus on the issues that are really important, to distract them from issues that, as I travel around the country, I hear about from everyday Americans. Okay, If, if you're actually hearing the issues that everyday Americans care about, they do care about illegal immigration. They do care about the economy. Again, Democrats suggesting that they are on their high horse about fear-mongering, is, it, it's just astonishing. There's, there's a, a really good post by Noah Rothman over at Commentary Magazine in which he goes through this. He says, the Washington Post declared that Trump and the GOP have settled on fear and falsehoods as a closing argument, with a little racially tinged rhetoric as a topper. He says, on health care and entitlements, the report noted the GOP has shown a willingness to instill fear in their electorate. You see, Republican lawmakers are suddenly supportive of protections for pre-existing conditions, despite their oppositions to the ACA. And then he, he goes on to talk about all of the supposed Republican fear-mongering. And he says, these articles have a point. Donald Trump's attempts to suggest that radical Islamist terrorists from the Middle East had infiltrated a caravan of asylum seekers traveling north through Mexico from Honduras is fear-mongering. The Times is on solid ground when it impugns efforts by Republican candidates to cast Antonio Delgado, a Rhodes Scholar who toyed with a career in music, as a big city rapper. And just as all these articles note, 
Election year efforts by the incumbent party to stoke baseless fears is a pretty standard tactic. And yet you would be hard pressed to find such ubiquitous denunciations of democratic efforts to instill in the minds of voters a near existential fear of the GOP. And then he just lists off all of these fear tactics used by Democrats. Right? In 2010, Republicans were admonished for circulating RNC-approved documents that labeled President Obama a socialist. The GOP's candidates were scolded for criticizing Barack Obama's support for the construction of a mosque near Ground Zero in Manhattan. ABC News savaged Republican candidates who attacked Democrats for supporting programs that outsourced American jobs and exported American capital to China. A party with its back against the wall routinely resorts to fear tactics. For much of the last decade, that was the Democratic Party. The Agenda Project accused the GOP of wanting to eliminate Medicare in 2011, and they illustrated that by showing Paul Ryan tossing an elderly woman off a cliff. In 2002, in 2012, sorry, Vice President Joe Biden accused the GOP of seeking to reinstitute black slavery. Senator Bernie Sanders said Republicans sought the elimination of the Department of Veterans Affairs and Social Security in 2013. DNC Chairman, Chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz summarized the Republican platform as let's kick women and immigrants out of the country in 2015. Hillary Clinton followed suit, claiming that Ted Cruz had tried to ban contraception. Okay, so all of the fear-mongering, welcome to American politics, where this sort of stuff happens all the time. And it does raise a severe question for the Democrats that they don't want to deal with, and this is why they're going to simply shout racist. What would you do with this caravan of migrants? What would you do with folks who are seeking asylum and are coming here not because they actually are being targeted by any sort of political violence, but because they are looking for more economic opportunity and don't have any intention of assimilating? What would you do with those people? Well, the answer for Democrats is they won't answer the question or they'll lie about it. So just today, a group of caravan migrants from Honduras filed a class action lawsuit against President Trump and various government agencies, including Homeland Security, for violating their Fifth Amendment due process rights if the government turns the caravan away as Trump has signaled he intends to do. The lawsuit was filed by 12 Honduran nationals, and it maintains that since the migrants are coming from three countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, suffering human rights crises, some migrants have grounds for admission as asylum seekers. By turning them away without fully hearing their asylum claims, they contend, the president and his administration are infringing upon their rights under the Administrative Procedures Act and the Declaratory Judgment Act. This is according to James Barrett over at Daily Wire. Though the Constitution applies to those living legally in the U.S., legal precedent has applied due process to aliens in deportation proceedings. So the lawsuit, Democrats are going to have to answer. Do they think that these folks should be able to sue their way into the United States? Democrats are also going to have to answer questions about their own treatment of people who have sought asylum in the United States and crossed the border in order to do so. James O'Keefe's Project Veritas released an undercover sting video on Thursday night, appearing to show campaign staffers for Beto O'Rourke, quote, illegally using campaign resources to buy supplies and help transport Honduran aliens. Now, listen, you wanna help folks who are already across the border in the United States and they are here pending an asylum claim? That's legal, there are folks who do it. But misappropriating campaign resources in order to do that, that is illegal. And apparently that was happening over at Beto O'Rourke's campaign. And then they wonder why so many Americans are not re resounding to the Democratic take on illegal immigration. And this is why when Paul Krugman says that Democrats are being honest about their agenda, no, they are not. James O'Keefe has almost single-handedly unmasked the Democrats for just how dishonest they are, but just by speaking to members of their own campaign. Here's a little bit of the tape when O'Keefe's folks over at Project Veritas went into the Beta O'Rourke headquarters and started asking around about whether the funds for Beta O'Rourke were being used to help out Honduran caravan, the caravan folks. So there's like, a, you know, that migrant caravan. They just, a few of them got here already and they're dropping them off like really close to Missouri. Who? Um, oh, that, the Hondurans? Oh, the Hondurans, yeah. yeah. Um, they, it's this holy thing, holy something church, but it's actually really close here to downtown, okay. she said. Don't ever repeat this one's wrap up. Like, mm -hmm. if we just say we're buying food for some event, like the Halloween events, because there's block walks coming up for Halloween. Okay, so, you know, obviously, Beto O'Rourke not exactly being forthcoming about his own politics. And then there's Andrew Gillum. So Andrew Gillum over in Florida, who's being given the royal treatment by the media. Uh, Andrew Gillum's own staffers are saying that he is the craziest of the craziest. This is Omar Smith, a Gillum campaign staffer saying that this guy is basically a radical. So you have the extreme right-wingers, those are the 
the Trump and the, the, the crazy, 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 crazy Republicans, the progressives are the crazy, crazy, crazy Democrat. Are you not a progressive? Isn't Gillum a progressive? Yeah. Gillum is a progressive. So Gillum is part of the crazy crazies? He's part of the crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, and that is absolutely true. Everybody knows that Andrew Gillum is part of the crazy crazy. He's been trying to label Ron DeSantis, who they're both running for governor of Florida right now. He's been trying to label Ron DeSantis a racist. That is such nonsense. There is no evidence that Ron DeSantis is a racist. He tried to label him an anti-Semite, which is absurd. Ron DeSantis, I know Representative DeSantis, that is a bunch of crap. It is just not true in any conceivable way. And not only that, Andrew Gillum, like that guy's gonna call Ron DeSantis you know, a racist and anti-Semite. Andrew Gillum has been connected with a wide variety of groups that promote boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, okay, which would destroy the state of Israel if it were adopted. Gillum has ignored growing calls to disavow this group with which he has associated Dream Defenders, even as the largest Jewish weekly publication in the country, the Jewish Press, urged Florida's Jewish residents to vote for DeSantis. Dream Defenders and Gillum have an extensive history. He recently signed the group's Freedom Pledge, promising not to accept money from private persons. By signing the pledge, he endorsed the group's radical freedom papers that decry police and prisons as racist. Okay, that's the actual Democratic Party. So Paul Krugman says Republicans are hiding their agenda. No, Democrats are hiding their agenda a lot more, and they're hiding their corruption too. Hey, Andrew Gillum is deeply corrupt by every available indicator. Any Republican who had the kind of corruption record Andrew Gillum has would not survive an election cycle. Okay, really, it's, it's at least not at the gubernatorial level. We'll talk about that in just a second, but first you're gonna have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. When you do, $9.99 a month, you get my show, you get the rest of Clavin's show, you get the rest of Knowles' show, and coming up Tuesday, November 6th, we have our Daily Wire backstage election edition. We'll be here drinking ourselves to death in good humor or out of just absolute rage and horror. God King Jeremy Boring, me, Andrew Clavin, the terrible Michael Knowles, Elisha Kraus, and for some reason, Colton Haas will be covering all the latest election news as it happens. Our own Cassie Dillon and Colton Haas will be bringing us updates from Twitter. So make sure to tune in. As always, only Daily Wire subscribers get to ask the questions. So make sure to subscribe today. Also, don't miss Andrew Clavin's next chapter of Another Kingdom, performed by the execrable Michael Knowles. Today, we'll be live streaming the first 15 minutes of episode five, which is titled The Nightmare Feast, which might also be our election special, come to think of it. It really depends on how that actually goes. So we will go check that out. Also, make sure that you subscribe over at YouTube or iTunes. Please leave us a review. Sunday special this week, Tucker Carlson. It's awesome. It's really, really good. You're going to want to see it. It's, I think it's one of the best we've ever done. So go check that out right now. For $99 a year, by the way, you get the annual subscription. All of those myriad glories, plus this, reactivated. The leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. See? Every time I'm back in LA, it just poof, reactivates. That's the magic of the leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. Go check that out right now. The only problem is that in order for me to find it, I had to come into this deep, dank place, this, this studio that apparently, as Colton suggested, was a former laser tag facility where we are filming for the next few weeks. But in any case, go, go subscribe. It'll help us pay for the studio renovation that must be done, obviously. Uh, go check that out right now. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so let's talk about Andrew Gillum's campaign for just a second. So. The dude has an FBI problem, and the mainstream media have been ignoring it, like really ignoring it in a major way. Imagine that a Republican candidate were basically had basically been implicated in an FBI sting scheme to give them a bunch of goodies. They accepted a bunch of goodies from an FBI undercover agent and in return for favors to be done on public-private works. Hey, that might be a, a front-page story. Well, that's pretty much what's happened with Andrew Gillum. And the Tampa Bay Times has covered it, but it's not being widely covered in the mainstream kind of national media. Here's what the Tampa Bay Times says. Starting in 2015, FBI agents came to Tallahassee. He was the mayor of Tallahassee, posing as businessmen, considering investments in the city. The three men, who reportedly identified themselves as Mike Sweets, Mike Miller, and Brian Butler, spent months cozying up to city officials and people close to them. The FBI investigation, based in part on their undercover work, has yielded several rounds of subpoenas, but no charges as of yet. A slew of Tallahassee officials and insiders have been named in those subpoenas over the past year. In 2013, the Community Redevelopment Agency in Tallahassee voted to give $1.3 million in taxpayer money to, to help a, a particular lobbyist named Adam Corey, who's a longtime Gillum friend and ally, until Gillum cut ties with him when he became inconvenient. Gillum voted with the rest of his fellow city commissioners to fund the project. At the time, Gillum's vote raised eyebrows because of his close association with Corey. One year later, Corey served as treasurer of Gillum's mayoral campaign. It also turns out that the FBI was giving all sorts of goodies to Gillum and his friends. 
Okay, so there's an ethics board that's been checking this out. According to the, according to the newspapers, Corey became close with Miller, reportedly introducing Gillum to an undercover agent sometime in 2016. One of the reported meetings between Corey, Gillum, and Miller, Miller being the FBI agent, at the Edison in May of that year became a point of controversy when the Democrat, this is the, the local newspaper, the Tallahassee Democrat, reported that Corey scheduled the meeting while on vacation with Gillum and other city lobbyists in Costa Rica. So now they're checking out what's the deal with Costa Rica. Right? It, that, that's a violation of ethics. Okay. Gillum says he did not discuss business in Costa Rica. It was just a vacation with longtime friends. But Corey's attorney has maintained Gillum never reimbursed the lobbyists for his portion of the trip. Also under investigation, Gillum took a trip with his brothers, Marcus, Corey, and Miller, to New York in August 2016. In an email inviting Gillum to meet up in New York, Corey noted that Miller had arranged hotel rooms, an outing to a Mets game, and a boat trip to the Statue of Liberty. The group didn't go to the Mets game, but they did get free tickets to Hamilton. Gillum says he didn't allow the FBI agent to pay for any part of his trip to New York, but the texts released by his chief lobbyist attorney showed the undercover agent paid for the Hamilton tickets. So bottom line is that theoretically, this FBI agent solicited help from a lobbyist who proceeded to allow payoffs to go through to Gillum, who then helped vote for this project that helped the lobbyist, right? That's, that's the basic scheme here. And the mainstream media are basically ignoring all that. I, I have to ask why it is that Andrew Gillum is getting this sort of attention when John James, the Republican senatorial candidate in Michigan, who's a black, a black former Air Force pilot, uh, is, is getting very little attention running a very competitive race in a purple state in Michigan. And the answer has to be that the media love Andrew Gillum because Andrew Gillum is a future Barack Obama in their view. He is very radical in his politics. So when Democrats tell you they are not lying about their own agenda, that is simply not true. They are, in fact, lying about their agenda on a fairly regular basis. And when they are honest about it, it doesn't go well for them. So John Tester, who's a senator from Montana, he was asked about gun control. He basically admits it doesn't even work and he wants it anyway. This is how radical Democrats are. Here's what he said. He was asked in June about all of this. He said that gun control would not stop school shootings, but it's going to help. Okay, so this is the way that Democrats push. They, they, they push their policies regardless as to whether those policies are actually effective or not. Okay, so let's do a little bit of mailbagging because it is indeed a Friday. So let's jump in. Troy says, hi, Ben. Love the show. Would you be surprised if Republicans maintain control of the House? If they do, who would you want as next speaker? Jim Jordan seems like a good choice. I really like Representative Jordan. I think that he was falsely maligned by the press. Uh, I don't see any reason Jim Jordan wouldn't make an excellent Speaker of the House. Uh, I'm not opposed to Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, even though there's been a lot of talk about him being too squishy. Uh, the fact is that Kevin McCarthy um, is less squishy, I think, on some of these issues than, for example, Paul Ryan has been. He might be able to build more coalitions than Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan will be harder line. If I had to choose between the two, I would choose Jim Jordan. Lee says, Dear Mr. Shapiro, ever since re-examining my political beliefs, I find it difficult to get myself into dating, since I'm concerned girls will immediately write me off because of my views. I'm not a Trump supporter nor a conservative, though I'm center-right and don't buy into a lot of social propaganda. I'm personally not that judgmental of people's views unless they're extreme, but I feel it makes it difficult to be forthcoming with how I see things. Do you have any advice on how to handle this concern? Well, it depends. I mean, if you are dating for marriage, then you obviously need to put your values at the center of your dating life. And that means discussing issues of deep concern to you and how you want to raise your kids. And if you're just dating for quote unquote fun, if you're doing that, then presumably you do what everybody else does when they're dating for fun, which is you hide your crazy until a little bit later in the relationship. Uh, I don't think that you necessarily lead with your most extreme positions when you're talking with somebody you want to date, but you should make clear that you are of conservative political bent, uh, that you have certain central values that, that you think are important to you. And then you have conversations about those values. Like when I started dating my wife, our, first, our very first date was a three-hour date in which we discussed free will and determinism and talked about sort of central values. We didn't talk a lot of politics per se. We were talking sort of deeper levels than that. Uh, but I also knew that my wife was Orthodox, right? I knew my wife was an Orthodox Jew. So we already had certain central values in common, which is why I think that dating folks within your religious tradition is a very good idea as a general rule. Um, you know, when it came to politics, my wife used to be, I think, a lot more moderate on politics. Uh, so I remember one of our first dates, we talked about the death penalty and gun control. She was more pro-gun control at that time. Uh, she was also uh, more skeptical of the death penalty than I was. But we were able to discuss those things, and she didn't think it was crazy that I was anti-gun control, and she didn't think it was crazy that I was, that I was in favor of the death penalty. We were able to talk all of those things through. So the real question is, can you talk those things through, or... Are you dealing with somebody who is going to throw you out because you disagree on these issues and is non-malleable on these issues? Maybe you'll be changed by her opinions, but you should at least be able to have the conversation. If you can't, it's no good. 
Edward says, hey, Ben, this week, one of my poli-sci professors taught extensively about Republicans and their disgraceful Southern strategy as if it were established fact. It seems like this line of thinking has been taught for so long, it just seems to pass as accepted wisdom. How do you rebut these claims? What really happened in the South to flip it from blue to red? And why exactly do folks on the left still insinuate that the South is full of racist white men who would immediately turn back to slavery if given the chance? Thanks, love the show. Well, the last part is really the question because the truth is that as the, Democra as the constituency in the South got younger, it got more Republican. So as the South got less racist, it also got more Republican. There are regional polls from Pew showing that all of the kind of malign talk about people from the South being more racist than people from other parts of the country is just not true. Racism is fairly equivalent to all the way across the country. Not only that, if you look historically, the Republicans didn't actually take the South in terms of the House of Representatives until basically 1994. So if it was the 1968 Southern strategy that shifted everything, then why did it take until 1994 for Republicans to take the House? The, the, the trends are just not strong enough to suggest that race alone is what shifted all this. Now, was there a Southern strategy that was used by the Nixon campaign? Well, some members of that campaign have suggested that there was, and they've, they've basically admitted that. Were there racial strategies used by Democrats at the same time? Sure, George Wallace was a Democrat, and the vast majority of people who voted racist continued to vote Democrat. Okay, so the, this, this, no, this notion that the Southern strategy is what completely changed the, the facts on the ground is similar, it, it's just not true. It's just not, it, it does not happen to be true. So there is a, a great piece by Dan McLaughlin from about 2012 called The Southern Strategy Myth and the Lost Majority. And it basically suggests that this stuff is exaggerated. Um, so it was, you know, to, we can go through this a little bit. So here, let, let me go through a little bit of this. First, according to professors Richard Johnston of the University of Pennsylvania and Byron Schaefer of the University of Wisconsin, the shift in the South from Democratic to Republican was overwhelmingly a question not of race, but of economic growth. The movement toward republicanism in the South began in the 1950s, while the Eisenhower administration was forcibly desegregating schools. As the South industrialized, working class whites and blacks remained Democrats until the 1990s. Here's the New York Times reporting on this. Quote, to give one example, in the 50s, among Southerners in low-income tercile, 43% voted for Republican presidential candidates. In the high-income tercile, 53% voted Republican. By the 1980s, those figures were 51% and 77%. Wealthy Southerners shifted rightward in droves. Poorer ones did not. Sean Trend of Real Clear Politics agrees. He says the GOP gradually increased its support in the South from 1928 to 2010. And Dan McLaughlin says, as late as 2010, there were still states like Alabama and North Carolina that were voting in their first Republican legislative majority since Reconstruction, something that would have happened overnight in the late 60s if the partisan realignment had been driven by lockstep white voting loyalties along racial lines. So that's, the data just are not there to support the idea that the entire South shifted Republican because of the race issue. Was it one of many issues? Yes. Was it, was it the key issue or even a key issue? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. A couple more of these. Let's see. Jesse, what are your thoughts on conservative think tanks? The left obviously is willing to distort science to fit whatever that ideology is at the moment. And I think it's important to have institutions that are, some, that are somewhat protected from their assault. Personally, I love crunching numbers and analyzing data, so I also wonder how one goes about working at a think tank. Thanks for all you do. Well, you can get an internship to places like Heritage Foundation or AEI. Uh, I have friends, I have relatives who have done that. Uh, I think that it is, it is important for these institutions to be there. I get a lot of my data from think tanks on both left and right. The fact that there are people who spend their day actually diving into the numbers and the data is deeply helpful. I'm a big fan. Santino says, hi, Ben. I have a debate coming up against my university's Democrat club, and I've been dealt the topic of healthcare." What prominent figure on the left, in your opinion, holds the most substantial, solid perspective on healthcare? Essentially, who Shapiro on the left I can listen to in regards to healthcare to better prepare myself? Thanks. Well, I believe that um, there's a guy named Matt Brunig, who is uh, a, a big advocate of sort of Nordic socialism or Nordic democratic socialism, because democratic socialism has a capitalist root. Um, and he talks about healthcare fairly regularly. Um, the truth is that there, the, the spectrum of healthcare thought is not quite broken down along left, right. Like Avik Roy, is a really good healthcare analyst, and he tends to be more right-leaning on some things and more left-leaning on others. He's kind of moderate. Um, Ezekiel Emanuel, who was one of the creators of Obamacare, has written extensively about these topics. Uh, there, there are a bunch of studies out there that are worth noting, by the way, on healthcare, and American healthcare in particular, some fibs that have been put out there. Number one, the fib that the U.S. spends grossly more per capita GDP on healthcare than any other country. We also make grossly more money. If you actually were to chart a line among industrialized countries as to income versus healthcare spending, what you see is basically a straight, uh, a straight arithmetic relationship, meaning that 
as GDP increases per capita, so does healthcare spending. And the United States is basically right along that line. We're not wildly overspending on healthcare. The, the other point to be made is that when people talk about life expectancy in the United States is low for spending this much money, well, not when you remove car accidents and murders, both of which we have disproportionately here in the United States, and neither of which reflects on the U.S. healthcare system, right? All of that just reflects on people dying prematurely for reasons having nothing to do with healthcare. So those are a couple of facts that you should have in your back pocket. Um, I would recommend there's a, a good book called uh, Mortal Peril by Richard Epstein, all about the quote-unquote right to healthcare that's worth reading. And uh, there are a bunch of good sources on healthcare that are they're worth checking out. Mitchell says, uh, Ben, I recently decided to go back to school for a degree in engineering. Being 30 and back in college, I have a different look on things than my peers. Needing to take a college writing course, we were presented with our final project this week. We are to choose a topic pertaining to the workforce and create a persuasive research paper regarding our topic. I informed my instructor I intend to research why the gender pay gap is a myth. This did not go over well. A few of the students and the instructor became very unhappy that I could even think such a thing. I was then told that in the spirit of the project, I would not be allowed to continue with the topic because it is considered too offensive. So my question is, if this is supposed to be a persuasive paper, wouldn't this fit the criteria and what makes this offensive? Also, the only thing I can think of is they believe I'm attacking their victimhood. Any advice on another topic I could do? Well, I mean, dude, you knew when you said that, that you were slapping them right in the face. I mean, obviously, uh, if you had just said, listen, I want to research the pay gap and then come to the conclusion the pay gap may be a myth, um, then maybe they'd let you get away with it. But yeah, obviously, there's nothing sexist or offensive about the idea the pay gap is a myth. The pay gap is a myth by all available data. So that is just, again, this is people taking offense at facts. I just did a speech in British Columbia at the University of British Columbia in which I, I began the speech by saying, facts are not offensive. And then I just read basically a list of facts and people got offended because that's what happens when you say things that are factual that people do not like, unfortunately. So uh, as far as other topics that you could do, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of topics that you could do, but if you want one that's not going to offend people all that much, then you're going to have to pick something that is that is outside the realm of the quote-unquote offensive. You might do one on where you think that it is necessary for the United for, for the government to start thinking about global warming, for example, because that's more of a nuanced topic. Uh, the current Nobel Prize winners have some great papers on that particular topic. It cuts against a lot of leftist preconceptions. You can go back and listen to our show a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it. Okay. Time for some things I like and some things that I hate. So this entire week, because of the Pittsburgh shooting, we've been doing uh, Jewish nigunim, uh, meaning kind of Jewish tunes that are used in prayer a lot. Uh, this one is a very famous one. It's actually a, a, an old Hebrew lullaby, uh, and it comes from the book of Genesis in the portion when Jacob's giving a blessing to Menachem uh, and, um, and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph. Um, and the, the text of it talks about the angel that protects me uh, that angel should protect you and allow you to prosper in the land of Israel. Here is a little bit of that tune. I use it pretty frequently. I tend to, uh, I do chazanus for the minion. So very often I'm asked to kind of pray for the, for the group uh, on, on Sabbath, particularly this is a tune I really like using. So here's a, a little bit of, of that tune. Tune. You can, and with all of the nigunim that I've been playing this week, they, the tunes are adaptable to various kind of biblical texts. This one, as I say, is uh, from Genesis 48:16. Says, "May the angel who hath redeemed me from all evil bless the lads, and let my name be named in them, and in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." So that's the that's the basic translation. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. Okay, so this is pretty spectacular. Apparently. An actor who has appeared on the television shows Better Call Saul and Longmire admitted to a local news outlet on Monday he severed his arm and lied about how it happened by posing as a war veteran. 
So Todd LaTourette is an Albuquerque, New Mexico-based actor. He said he'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and that he sawed off his arm during a psychotic episode 17 years ago. First of all, I don't know if he was mentally disordered. Maybe he just felt that he was a, a, two-armed per, a one-armed person in a two-armed person's body. He says that he sawed off his arm during a psychotic episode 17 years ago and had been off his medication at the time of the episode. He said, I severed my arm with a, in my hand with a skill saw. The state of my mind was a psychotic episode. To which I say, dude, it's called acting. Like, whoa, that seems like a really extreme way to get a job. I mean, but, I mean, I guess, I'm burdens on you, Daniel Day-Lewis. Your move, Daniel Day-Lewis. My goodness, wow. He said uh, that he, he apologized for, um, he, he apologized for his stolen valor because he, he then claimed that he was a military vet. Uh, but that's, that's not good stuff. Guys, you know, treat, treating mental illness as though it is nothing, it's not a big problem, is a large, large mistake in virtually every, in virtually every circumstance. Okay, so we will be back here on Monday in preparation for the election because it is coming. It is nearly here. We are in the final countdown. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Okay, so we will be back here on Monday with all that. Have a good weekend. Try to enjoy yourself. Try to stay off Twitter. And I will see you back here with all the latest news. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Senya Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caramina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 